Welcome to the Procurement Show. Hello and welcome to The Procurement Show, the show that tackles the topics we all need to think about and sets out to explore the more interesting bits of procurement. I'm Jonathan O'Brien. And I'm Paul Philpott. My role here is to, well, more often than not, I end up making the coffee, but I also like to ask some difficult questions too. This week, we're looking at sustainable procurement in the creative industry. And this is a subject that we've explored quite a bit in recent podcasts, but especially when we think of industries that are maybe extracting resources from the ground or causing deforestation to grow crops, then we can see those links with that practice and what happens in the supply chain and the impact it has on the planet. However, we thought it would be good to consider how sustainability might apply when what is being sourced is less physical, perhaps less tangible. So we thought it would be good to look at the world of creative procurement and how sustainability might bring value. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organisations around the globe. And to do this, we've got a very special guest from Interpublic Group. Interpublic Group is a big advertising company. In fact, one of the big four advertising agencies globally. They own five major networks and over 100 individual agencies around the world and employ nearly 57,000 people. IPG is one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world. And I'm joined by Annabelle Carbari, who leads digital and production procurement for IPG. Annabelle, welcome to The Procurement Show. It's really great that you could come and join us today. Thank you. I'm super excited, actually. It's the first ever podcast, so thank you for welcoming me. Oh, how delightful yeah, to have you. Yeah. You didn't need to admit that because you could have done, yeah, it's just like the 50th <laughs> yeah. one I've done, you know. Yeah. Got to say, I'm really looking forward to this interview, yeah. obviously, yeah. because being a member of the creative industries myself, you obviously used to be in radio and broadcasting yeah. Yeah. and a creative. And in fact, you still are, are a creative person thank now. You. We, so we are all creatives here together lovey so i'm going to start with your linkedin page this was the bit that intrigued me so let me just read this out i fell into procurement so here to make sure it is as fun creative and awesome as it can be whilst creating the next generation of world-class procurement professionals that just get stuff done so we can have more time doing the other things we love like traveling the world drinking beers whilst watching a live band you get the point so (laughs) (laughs) i read that and i thought we have to have this person on the procurement show so before we get to the real stuff annabelle how can procurement be fun creative and awesome First and foremost for me, choosing the right industry to be in is super important. Creative and fun and whatnot is quite a subjective view, right? But for me, there's three factors, one of which is, yeah, choosing the right industry. Let's take, for example, an extreme example, in fact, the advertising industry versus construction, right? You're going to be working with different people. You're going to be in different physical environments. So office spaces and whatnot are going to be definitely different. And also the types of job opportunities you get in, say, the advertising world versus construction production is very, very different. For example, a production category lead, you would more likely find in, say, advertising versus construction. So again, I feel like depending on what industry you work with, that will definitely influence the types of roles and opportunity you'll get that, again, are subjective to what you feel is creative and fun for you. And I'd say the second factor is definitely the procurement team that you work in. I love to work in procurement teams that are quite disruptive, are really open to creativity, and also that you have role models in there who are, I guess, people you look up to who create a different version of procurement. 
And I feel like without those types of people and that type of environment and also a type of organisation that does welcome creativity, you're not really in a place where you can start creativity yourself. Essentially, you do need to have that type of environment, those types of people. And then thirdly, I believe you have to have the right role that suits the extent of how creative you want to be in procurement. And for me, with production procurement and digital procurement, marketing procurement, et cetera, it was honestly like the roles I've taken up in those categories have allowed me to be very entrepreneurial and very creative in the type of procurement I do versus a role that is, you know, has a natural ceiling such as FM to an extent. Your subcategories like stationary, let's say, a typical Mm. category we often people associate with procurement, but there is a natural ceiling. So I do feel that creativity and fun in terms of procurement is definitely influenced by the type of role that you take. So there's much, much, much more opportunity for creative procurement if you're in a creative industry. I Mm. do think so to an extent because, again, it's the types of people, right? I get to work with creative people. And of course, those types of people are going to be a lot more open to a different version of procurement versus those who perhaps are working more with people who are probably used to a traditional form of procurement and also a traditional form of working because of the type of work they do. It's just human nature, right? So yeah, I definitely think there's a lot more opportunity. Annabelle, just now you mentioned a classic category example of stationery, but I'm going to assume that as a group of advertising agencies, most of the things that you buy aren't really physical things, but the kind of things that you need in creating excellent client communications and campaigns will involve things like media, design, production, dare I say it, usage, licensing, Mm -hmm. contracts. These aren't actual physical things. Mm. So how can procurement be effective if you're buying something that is so intangible or hard to define? I'm going to put a spin on that question. Uh I'm going to tell you why. Because actually within production and media for our creative agencies, a lot of things are tangible. In fact, we are the ones providing the more creative services. So that means I'm going to be procuring services and products that will allow them to create those less tangible creative services for a client. So I guess it's more, what would my advice be for, say, marketing procurement who are procuring our creative services. First and foremost, whenever you're buying creative services that are not so tangible, you have to develop a really strong relationship with that supplier. Mm-hmm. Yes. You need to understand what's their commercial modeling because that gives you little nuggets of how you can create your commercial model. And I say commercial because it's not a costing model most of the time when you are procuring creative services. Mm-hmm. You have to think in a more commercial way. And by having those relationships with those creative agencies, you can really understand how they do it, which almost becomes a mirror of what your commercial will be. And then secondly, I thought I'd give you a really good example of, in fact, it answers your question more directly, where say if you're procuring an advert, like Mm -hmm. you want to create an advert for a product that you're looking to launch, right? You can create some form of measure around it, but you have to go above and beyond that. So let's take that example. You would have a typical rate card, which would set the boundaries of what it costs per hour to use a certain level of professionalism. Mm -hmm. So for example, it'll cost X amount for a creative director versus someone who is an apprentice who is also a creator, but just doesn't have as much experience, etc. But you have to go above and beyond that because with creative work, it's very hard to understand, okay, how do we apply that to something that's 
just creativity, right? For this example, you would apply a creative schedule. A creative schedule is whereby you've got your rate card, but from the moment you have conversations with that supplier, you say to them, this is how I want the creativity to happen. This is the phase approach. This is what I want out of each of those phases. And also I want to understand from you guys, you know, at phase one, for example, when you create, say, the concept How many people do you need? What types of people do you need? And on average, for this type of work at this stage, how long does it take? So you can actually quantify creative services to an extent. You just have to be a little bit more creative in terms of how you model it and actually how you project manage the commercial element of it. So I'd say that particular example can be applied to multiple types of forms of procuring creative services. Mm But that's an example where you just go above and beyond that typical rate card methodology. Let's just keep talking about measurement because I'm really intrigued by that whole measurement thing. Because from my experience of buying sort of creative type procurement is there are two types of thing that you're buying. There's one is where you're buying production time or you're buying channel time. You know, the things that you can quantify where you know how much it costs for that person per hour and you can quantify what they're doing in terms of output. And then you've got this other big fluffy thing called creativity Mm -hmm. where you kind of want that person that did the Super Bowl advert because they brought something that's you just want the essence of something. And that's the bit you can't quantify. How do you begin to sort of measure that stuff? Do you mind if I jump in on that that question? Because the person that did so-and-so is something Mm. that we get asked because we engage with celebrities to front voice or campaign run something and then you really don't have an idea of how much somebody would charge there's a lot of going to and fro because i can't give an example but they're a very well-known a-list celebrity in the country and it might go back to what you actually mentioned earlier annabelle and what you often say and that's the openness of discussion Mm -hmm. communication with your suppliers and everybody involved in that supply chain and then sometimes it's like oh that's the price Mm, that seems fair Mm -hmm. and you're not running to rules it's like well yeah all right What do you think, Annabelle? That's too much. That often happens. And I think it's really critical that you start to mingle with other creatives to really understand, okay, what's the price that they've paid, right? What's the price that other similar clients, in fact, have paid for this type of creative work? And in addition to that, start talking to perhaps creators in that industry to get a sense of what their view would be and what would be essentially a fair price. And for all of that insight and knowledge and mingling, et cetera, to understand the industry more and more, that's when you start to almost have this instinct of what is the right price versus, okay, what's sort of taking the mick a little bit. But in addition to that, you also have to think sometimes, unfortunately, we're in this difficult situation where price doesn't matter at the first hurdle because this person could change the game Hmm. in terms of your business or a product launch, et cetera. And procurement needs to understand that. And that's actually one of the major things I always would say to marketing procurement is understand the true objective and how critical this supplier relationship is Hmm. because actually negotiating on the price might not be your role right here your role actually might be facilitating the relationship between client procurement and supplier procurement and their commercial team again that's definitely i guess a new creative way Hmm. procurement should be working with their suppliers and a way where we're not just creating rate cards and ways to measure the output of creativity from a cost perspective that's really insightful Um, yeah because what that says is you've got to recognize when is this critical and we need that thing yeah and when should we flex our muscles and have that leverage yeah and the return on investment inevitably 
you will get a return on the investment because you're dealing with such big campaigns and such big things compared to how much you're spending for it. But you want that little bit extra, don't you? The Procurement Show. Exploring the more interesting bits about procurement. And now, the Procurement Fun Fact. This edition's exciting tale of preposterous procurement, bizarre buying, or simply saucy sourcing. Governments often get criticised for bad procurement and wasting taxpayers' money. And perhaps one of the biggest examples was the government that commissioned the building of the Ryung Yong Hotel, an impressive glass pyramid-shaped building with 105 storeys and boasts no less than 3,000 rooms. Work began on the Ryongyong Hotel in 1987 and has been stop-start since that time. After a long pause, construction was restarted in 2008 and is partially finished, but to date, the hotel has remained completely unoccupied and not a single one of the rooms on any of the 105 floors have ever been used. The reason for this is perhaps due to the fact that the Ryongyong Hotel is in North Korea, and the 3,000 rooms is about the same number as the total number of tourists that are allowed into North Korea each year. And it's not finished yet, with the remaining work estimated to cost around $2 billion, which (laughs) is around one-twentieth of North Korea's gross domestic product. So, it's pretty unlikely that the Ryongyong Hotel is going to open anytime soon. However, the hotel continues to be promoted as opening soon. The Procurement Fun Fact. Contact us by email. Hello at theprocurementshow.com. Send us a tweet at Procurement Show or connect with us on LinkedIn. Search for The Procurement Show. Can I bring into the discussion sustainability? Okay, so this is obviously the thing you're really, really into. This is a passion of yours. Surely if you're setting out to be sustainable, then the product that your agencies produce and what we all consume and the whole, everything that's involved must also be sustainable as well. How do you make sure that all your practices, your approach reflect this concept? Communication. It's as simple as that. And that's us as a creative agency communicating our sustainable practices and objectives and needs internally, so from a procurement perspective, from a business perspective. But in addition to that, we need to understand our client needs and our supplier needs. So there needs to have that honest conversation between us all to really understand truly how we can create a sustainable ecosystem amongst us all that aligns with one another and, in fact, complements one another. Now, don't get me wrong, we do get ourselves in situations, and it's a positive situation, where usually a supplier won't really know what sustainability needs and what they need to do, essentially. So we would be the ones that almost start that chain effect of what we believe sustainability is, how we want to drive that through our supply chain. That then just has a knock-on effect in terms of how clients, suppliers, and the business in general will define sustainability and the practices that will go along with it as well. So there's something really important there, because what I think you've just said is if you're driving sustainability, you're driving sustainability with your suppliers because you are shaping the way they're representing their products because you're helping them define that. You're helping them communicate that. So sustainability has to underpin that. You're helping your clients be sustainable in the way they're perceived. But at the same time, you're driving sustainability with your suppliers as well. So it sounds like you're in this really unique position in the value chain where you're kind of driving sustainability in both directions. 
Yeah, pretty much. But wow. it needs a team of people, hmm. though, to allow that to happen. It's not just sustainable procurement. It's sustainability from a, a business aspect. We need to have a sustainable ambassador or some form of lead from a supplier perspective, etc. So, yes, we have to position ourselves from all angles, but so do all the other types of stakeholders involved in a supply chain. They need to do the exact same. With regards to what you do, your industry is very much based on image. Mm. And if something doesn't look right or come across right or backfires, <laughs> it will soon impact on brand. How do you decide what looks good? with regards to your approach to sustainability and how do you measure that? First and foremost, in terms of the content that we create for our clients, it's again a conversation to have an open conversation to have with our clients to say, what does sustainability mean to you guys as a brand and also to the end consumers, first and foremost. In terms of KPIs, again, this is, well, in procurement, it's going to be different, right? The KPIs we set in terms of what is sustainability is going to be very different to KPI set for our clients in terms of the outcome of our, you know, an advert, et cetera. But if we're talking about procurement, there's KPIs such as increasing the number of diverse suppliers that we include mm -hmm. in our tender mm -hmm. processes or tender opportunities. However, these KPIs, I feel, have to be embedded fully into not just procurement, but the overarching business as well. We've got our own KPIs. Okay, great tick. But if we're, say, up against one of our agencies who's saying, Annabelle, we need this service and we'd like to go out to tender, but guess what? This is the budget. And I say, well, we need to include X, Y, and Z suppliers. And they're like, well, we already know they're way above. And we're like, well, we're trying to support driving more diverse supplies. That's an objective of ours. Now, if we have different objectives and they don't really have diversity as a KPI, that factor becomes secondary. Mm -hmm. So that's where there's a bit of a clash. So we have to, as procurement, set the KPIs that are obviously going to support driving sustainability upwards as a business and to our agencies. But in addition to that, we need to make sure we educate and support embedding those KPIs in the relevant places in a business so that we can apply those sustainable practices in a way without any blockers, essentially. And what if your suppliers are just not on the same page as you? So you're saying this is what we need and your suppliers are just, you perhaps have limited choice. Maybe there's only two or three that you can work with and they just don't want to invest. They just don't want to do it. It's a conversation of education, informing them on why we're doing this and how it's actually going to benefit them as well. And if you are working with, say, a supplier again, to be honest with you, you should have already had that relationship with yeah. them where introducing a new concept like sustainable procurement isn't a, oh, my God, what are you introducing again to us? You know, it's not going to be something frightening because you've already got that foundation relationship in place where having those conversations are actually quite easy. So, yeah, if it's a new supplier, it's education and building a relationship. If it's an existing supplier, you should be in a position where you've already got a relationship to facilitate those types of conversations. You've thrown in a term earlier and it's probably an idea for an entire episode in its own right. And that is supplier diversity. Yep. What does supplier diversity mean to you? It differs depending on, in fact, the market we operate in. There are different levels of diversity. There's different categories, different definitions, etc. And those have to be set from the onset. And we have to ensure that we create our own KPIs that align with 
corporate and the organization of what is deemed to be a KPI that is supportive of driving diversity. And usually it's in the form of a percentage against those typical categories of diversity. And we would use those KPIs, understand them and say, right, how are we going to amend our processes and our category strategies to ensure that we are not just including them in procurement processes and methodologies and whatnot, but how are we actually getting to a point where we're actually using them as part of our business and okay. they are providing a service and we're not doing, I think it's called positive discrimination. And it's a very, very sensitive area. But yeah, that's sort of my steer at the moment on diversity. And these would be categories based on race, gender, age, yes. disability Correct. and so on. Yeah, okay. Right. But at the end of the day, there's no point in engaging with a supplier of any kind unless they can supply and deliver, unless they hit right. those targets. You use the term KPIs. We always talk about KPIs, measurement and delivering lovely Excel spreadsheets with columns and columns of data. What about those things that you can't quite measure, though? How do you report them back to the business? I can't and think how, of any examples you, right now. And how do you that... measure them? If it can't be measured oh. and somebody's saying, You turned my question on its head then, didn't you? Yeah, but the thing is, we live in this world where businesses operate based on financial performance and being able to show a number if there isn't a number. And diversity is a great example. So you mentioned percentages there. And I guess it's quite a crude way of being able to do it. You then end up in this situation where, well, we can't meet the number, so we've got to have positive discrimination. Uh And we can argue, should we do that? Should we not do that? I don't know. But the point is you're still trying to bring it back to a number. But what if there's a situation where if we make this improvement, it's going to improve the quality of life for a community or for a sector of the population? And you can't measure that. So how do you do that, Annabelle? We actually have almost like a database where we collect all of the incredible things that come about from working with diverse groups and what impact we have and also what impact they have on us as well. So I think there's, again, we have to educate people on, like you said, not just, I guess, the bottom line and just ticking a tick box in terms of diversity and using diverse suppliers, but we have to make sure that we present those non-commercial effects of working with diverse suppliers. And also we need to go above and beyond that because as part of our diversity program in terms of procurement, we actually develop a relationship with them and we actually develop innovation meetings with them to say, actually, you are unique. Like you provide a different perspective on certain things. So we would love to actually work with you and on certain things that perhaps you wouldn't get from another type of supplier. And in addition to that, we go above and beyond that, where we start to understand how can we help you as a business? What resources can we give you that can help you have more opportunity in this world? Mm. For example, the advertising world, where sometimes you do, some diverse suppliers are diluted because of the big boys of the industry and certain categories. So yeah, I think with that, we have to just be more vocal and, oh, that's my dog. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we have to be more vocal about yeah. we have, but we need to make sure we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Right. The dog has a view here too. Let's be yeah. diverse. Yeah. Animal diversity is really important. It's time to ask Jonathan. And we interrupt this episode of the procurement show for a commercial break. Actually, for Ask Jonathan. Yes. I like it. So this today's Ask Jonathan, okay? Mm-hmm. Comes from Dexter, who asks. Now that we have all got through the worst of COVID, well, we hope we have, we seem to be returning to some in-person meetings with suppliers. And more recently, I've been back doing in-person negotiations. 
What's your view, Jonathan, on handshakes in this post-COVID era? And is the handshake still an important part of a negotiation to show power? Do you know, I'm so glad that you've asked this. Thank you, Dexter, for this. Because do you know what? The handshake's an interesting thing. And the first post-COVID, do we even shake hands anymore? I don't know. So I'm kind of doing this thing where I'm going to a business meeting or I'm turning up to work with a client. I wait to see if they reach out their hand because I yeah. don't know, do we shake hands? Do we hug? Do we kiss? You know, what do we do? So I'm kind of waiting for them to lead. Anyway, enough about your marriage. Yep. And what <laughs> what I'm finding is about half of the people want to shake hands. But in a negotiation, now here's the thing. There used to be this kind of whole sales theory, this negotiation theory that the handshake was an important part of the negotiation. You had to have a firm handshake. And then you've got these people, and it's terrible if you're on the receiving end of these things, where they grab your hand and they try and turn it so their hand is above yours, like a show of power, like some psychological show of power. Or the hand grip has to be Mm. firm Mm. I was never very good at those things because I'd never grab in time and they would have like the end of my hand and not have the whole hand and I'd feel like I hadn't given a proper handshake and I'd lie awake at night thinking about I didn't shake that person's hand very well (laughs) they gave me a more firm handshake than I had and that must mean that they think I'm a really bad procurement person do you know what? I don't think it matters. And I think that old thing of trying to do power handshakes is completely dead. I think it's an old male macho thing from 1977 that has no relevance whatsoever in today's world. And somebody told me about this recently where they did a negotiation and the person tried to almost break their hand. And he said, what should I have done in that situation? And what you should do if somebody tries that trick on you is you call it out. You say, whoa, that's a tough handshake you've got there. You know, why don't we try that again? Let's just shake normally. And you actually call it out because then they're going to feel really stupid. So there is no place for trying to play power games by having a better handshake or your hand above theirs or a firmer handshake. If you're going to shake hands and, you know, there's this kind of human respect thing as to whether people actually want to do that now. But if you're going to just do it normally in a way that respects them, because that gives you the moral high ground. It gives you the upper position because you haven't tried to pull some power stunt that's designed to somehow make you superior. That stuff just doesn't work in negotiation. So take the upper hand. If somebody tries to pull a crazy trick on you, call it out. Make a joke of it, but the fact that you've called it out means they'll feel a little bit silly about it. And if you have a question about handshakes or, in fact, any other part... (coughs) (laughs) Where are you going with this? I don't know. You've got lost now, haven't you? (laughs) You've got nowhere to go no, with that I've link. Go. You started uh, out to do a funny link you've got... and you've got nowhere to go on it. Okay. <clears throat> and if you've got a question I about... I think we should keep that bit in. Okay. <laughs> 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 and if you've got a question about handshakes or any other form of bodily contact, here's how to ask Jonathan. That'll do. Ask Jonathan. Email your question to jonathan at theprocurementshow.com. You might be part of the next show. The Procurement Show. The latest thinking, the greatest insights. You said, you know, if we start talking to them, they have things they can contribute. When you're looking at groups that are maybe they're diverse groups that you need to include. I'm reminded of some work that I got involved in with a big company in Canada who were working with 
a range of diverse suppliers, but one of them was First Nation communities, so protected communities in Canada. And they found initially the engagement started by the need for inclusion and actually developed into a much greater thing because they found once they engaged those communities, they had huge contributions to make because they saw things in a very different way they understood things in a very different way when it came to big infrastructure projects that perhaps would run across their land they had very different insights as to how that could happen and nobody had ever thought about that stuff before so it was a bit of a game changer from that perspective so it comes back down to that communication aspect doesn't it it does engaging and communicating i think there's a responsibility thing here as well because what i'm hearing here is that if you're in the world of creative and advertising then there is this sudden responsibility that you have we've talked about diversity but there's Mm. many other dimensions to sustainability here as well so i mean is that fair annabelle that you have perhaps more responsibility than other industries in terms of procurement to ensure that you do it well and sustainability in general we all have equal responsibility but the way that sustainability is viewed and applied is very different depending on the industry that you work with and the type of company you work with. But yeah, I think we all have an equal responsibility of driving sustainable practices for our our entire supply chain. That doesn't just mean our tier ones, it means our tier twos, our clients. Yeah, I do think we all need to be more aware of what that means to our specific company and our industry. When you say more aware, do you think that the industry is communicating this loudly enough, the importance of all this? And what does the future look like with regards to sustainability in the big world of the creative industries? This might be a controversial statement. Go on, (laughs) give it it to us. I honestly think we do talk about sustainable procurement, right? Mm. But we talk about it amongst ourselves, procurement and procurement. And we talk about it in a way where it's very theory and it's nothing, we don't usually talk about the how. And that's the creative part. How are we actually going to implement sustainable practices that are going to support our business drive sustainability and that's it right and I'm almost a bit tired of talking and being a part of seminars and conferences of this is sustainable procurement and you know this is the future of procurement I'm like okay cool thanks for that but how are you going to do it and why are you talking to me why are you not talking to people outside of procurement because they're the ones we need to win over they're the ones we need to educate we need their support and buy-in for all of this to actually happen so we need to talk about it more but the how rather than the theory and the basics of sustainable procurement i'm just writing that down for my book (laughs) on sustainable procurement that'll be good yeah available in all good bookstores by the end of the year a lot of the bad ones as well so you're talking about (laughs) actual targets do this by that date achieve this by whatever date communicate this to the end consumer who at some point might need to understand that doing something more sustainable may well mean the whatever it is might cost a bit more or take longer to deliver because yeah you're right everyone's talking about it that's the one of the things i see a lot of because there's so much stuff and it's great there's lots of free stuff in terms of data and understanding um, because everybody's sharing everything because it matters to us how do you do it That's the hardest thing Mm. to do. And actually the how, when you've worked in procurement and done a strategic procurement role, the how is straightforward because we've got these wonderful tools like category management, supplier relationship management, ability to negotiate. And if we're doing those things well, we put our sustainability hat on and we do them through the lens of sustainability because those tools work just fine 
once mm-hmm. we are able to change our focus and think about them in a different way because they will allow us to do those things and i think that's then how the how comes into sharp focus but we're still kind of we're not making that connection i think no i don't think so and i think we need to change how we're measured in procurement so we need to start including sustainability kpis in the right places in the right roles as well because the KPIs for an FM category lead in terms of sustainability are going to be different to, say, a HR category lead. So we need to understand that. But we also need to make sure that these are actually embedded and actually measured as part of personal performances. Otherwise, it's just going to become a thing. Hmm. It's going to become a thing. It's human nature. It just We're not measured against something. Usually, we just think, OK, fine, I'll just leave it in the background. It's going to sit in the back of my head. And I do think people need a motivation. So there has to be KPIs with sustainability that are within the procurement team. And also we educate the wider business on these KPIs and also get them to take equal responsibility as well. So you've said two key things there in terms of what procurement should be doing. We should be communicating and we need to change our KPIs to make this more relevant. What else should procurement people be doing right now to be ready for the future? I think they should be understanding first and foremost what are the business objectives in terms of sustainability and with that start to almost create a strategy on how are you as a procurement function going to support in the business achieving those objectives and what are the relevant KPIs that you're going to be measured against that are going to also support that and drive that as a procurement function. For example, net zero is a big thing that a lot of organizations are trying to achieve. We as procurement need to make sure that our critical categories, such as real estate, FM, for example, are implementing sustainable practices that are going to support driving net zero in those categories because they are critical, right, to net zero. Those are where you find both your indirect and direct purchasing methodologies that will have a massive impact and a direct impact on our net zero objectives as an organisation. It's Friday night, all right, and you've finished a heavy week in procurement and you're going to get a takeaway. What takeaway would you procure? Are we talking like philosophically here? No, no, because I'm leading on to the philosophical question. You know, mine would be a Chinese. Mm, Uh, Jonathan Jonathan would be be a curry. curry. What would yours be? Do you know what? I think mine would be a curry as well. And it would have to be an extra hot chicken tikka masala. Wow. Oh, yeah. Putting a spin on takeaways. (laughs) (laughs) What would be your three key takeaways for sustainable or digital or media or creative based procurement of which we talked about all those things today? Your three key takeaways for us, please. Number one, if you want to be more creative with procurement start experimenting with different industries different roles and also start networking with different types of procurement teams however you can like conferences or meetups etc because that's where you'll really learn what you like what you dislike and where you sort of fit and also what environment you can thrive in if you are the type that wants to be creative in your job and then secondly In terms of sustainability, I would say start understanding what your business objectives are. What does sustainability mean to them? Because if you don't, then you're going to struggle later down the line because it's critical that you do. So, you know, as a procurement function, how you need to operate as a means to support the organization achieving their sustainability goals. And then lastly, I would say, please can procurement stop talking to procurement and start talking to other people that are part of a business 
to really, I guess, have an opportunity to portray what we can do as procurement that goes above and beyond the typical savings. And also, I almost see ourselves as becoming a multi-service function because we can add innovation. You know, we do risk management, we do commercial training, we create innovation in places where, for example, we talk about why our suppliers can't be clients and things like that. And I think like all of those things need to be communicated with people outside of our procurement community to really start changing who procurement are and how we operate. I've learned yeah. so much today. This has been really insightful. Annabelle Kerberry, thank you so much for joining us on The Procurement thank Show. You. It's been a delight. Thank you. You've been listening to The Procurement Show. Contact us by email, hello at theprocurementshow.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn, search for The Procurement Show, and on Twitter, at Procurement Show. Visit us at theprocurementshow.com. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organizations around the globe. Copyright Positive Purchasing, all rights reserved. Produced by Fresh Air Studios.